This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Welcome to another episode of the Cherish Podcast. Today we're talking about walls, which as any designer knows is a huge element of any interior. But what do you do with them, especially now in light of open plan layouts, expansive rooms, you end up having huge wall spaces and how do you fill them, make them exciting, make them interesting. I'm very lucky today to have three very talented designers and an industry insider who are going to talk about how the way we treat walls has evolved over the past couple of decades. We have Bella Mancini, who is known for her incredibly charming and astute way with working with patterns and pattern walls. In fact, one of her New Year's resolutions on Instagram is to feature more pattern walls because they're one of her followers' favorite things. So welcome, Bella. Thank you. We also have Elena Frampton, who is not only a talented designer, but she also runs an art advisory service, and she has an experiential gallery in Bridgehampton. In her showroom in New York, she also features young artists. And she's an expert at dealing with bringing art into any interior, which is, of course, very important. And as we all know, the art world can be incredibly intimidating, and we're going to talk with her about how she discovers new artists, works with artists, and convinces clients of the importance of art. So welcome, Elena. Hi, thanks so much. Happy to be here. And I'm very happy that we also have Jeffrey Bouchard, who is the CEO of Philip Jeffries, a wall coverings company that was founded by his father and started with a few grass cloths and is now one of the preeminent global companies, very innovative in coming up with new wall coverings, exciting wall coverings. And Jeffrey's here to explain how Philip Jeffries has evolved and how wall coverings have become such an important element of design. So welcome, Jeffrey. Yeah, thanks. So so great to be here. So I think I'm going to start with you, Bella, because I think you are such, as I said, have such a charming way with uh, working with patterns and wall coverings and all kinds of amazing wallpapers. And there are so many companies now that are doing innovative and exciting wall coverings. There's Gracie and de Gournay with the more traditional murals and romantic Chinese looking. There's Fromental, there's Elitis, there's Maya Rudolph, there's Arte. How do you go about, A, finding what you want to put on walls and B, convincing clients who can be a little conservative that, you know, a wild pattern or texture on the wall or even a lacquered wall is the way to go. How, how does that come about? Well, I think I think it's really important to state that a wallpaper has come back in a really big way in the last 10 years. So it used Huge. to be, you know, I've had my business, I'm going on my 20th year. And those first many years, I couldn't get people to do wallpaper. They had like the nightmare kind of memories of their parents' house and grandmother's, wa- house. grandmother's house, whatever it was. They had this impression that wallpaper was sort of like an old lady thing. So I think that it's the wallpaper companies have done such a great job with creating a product that's so much more visually interesting and doing things that are handmade. And and so that's the first thing I think it's it's become more popular so people are more open to it. I also, in in my practice, I feel like it's not always easy to get people to use pattern on large pieces of upholstery. So I, it's getting more so. But I feel like 
in in my mind, a room really kind of comes alive when there's some pattern, and I really love to use it on the walls if I can. I'm a pattern girl. I very I'm, I'm wearing a solid dress today, but I wear a ton of pattern, um, and I have a ton of pattern in my own homes, and I I just happen to gravitate towards interesting color combinations and and different techniques. And I think I don't always even have to push so hard anymore because there's just such good product out there. Right. But one of the things I think you're really skilled at is mixing patterns, and that's harder. I mean, you know, one reason we all love solids in our wardrobes and in our rooms is because, you know, you can contrast blue with brown, whatever. But uh, whenever there's a pattern involved, the scale of the pattern, don't you think that's much harder? And I think maybe that's one reason that you are so successful as people look at your rooms and say, this is fabulous, but I could never do this myself. Wow. So how do you how do you go about that? Thank you, first <laughs> of all. Um, and that's sort of the idea, right? We want people to come to us and um, keep hiring decorators. Um, I think it's practice. It's just practice. And and knowing that, you know, when you're looking at a, a mood board or, or however a designer puts something together, we don't do mood boards in our office, but we have a large bulletin board and we pin kind of everything up. If you're looking at that, you're not really seeing the room as it will be. So I think people tend to overthink how patterns are going to play with one another. They're not thinking about the fact that one pattern is going to be 10 feet away from the other, and it's going to be separated by maybe a solid carpet and have lots of other furniture in the space. So I think it just takes practice, and um, mixing scales is really important, so not having too many of the same sized prints. And how do you do that in terms of your presentations? Because, of course, when you do a swatch, everything is sort of the same scale. How do you you convince people? Do you do renderings? Uh, We do a lot of renderings, yes. And, you know, a lot of it is just really trying to explain it to people. And hopefully at the point when we're showing, doing a decorating presentation, they're really trusting us at that point anyway and kind of hand it over to us a bit. Great. So, Elena, how do you feel about wallpaper? Because your work often uses a lot of neutrals, often features artworks, obviously, but you also use wallpaper. So how does that fit into your... I love wallpaper. And I also love exploring wallpaper as an illusion of a mural. So that means looking at the repeat. Right. And perhaps doing custom pattern and custom layout that's tailored for the space. So that's something, you know, it could be on the ceiling. It could be, you know, clients usually are comfortable with and ask for a feature wall. This is something that happens all the time. And so then it's our job to sort of say as the professional, that's a great idea. We're on board with that, but we want to paper the whole space. And we want to envelop you in this tropical print or whatever. And that is more of a push. Right. Because it's interesting you say that because when we did our podcast on color, Martin Kesselman, who's a designer and a color expert, he said, you know, there is this idea that people have, oh, they do one wall of a certain color. And he said he hates that. He loves to do the envelope. You agree, Bella? Oh, God. It makes me crazy. I always think it looks like either they ran out of money and couldn't finish wallpapering the room or, like, they just couldn't commit. It never really looks like it's meant to be. And especially when people do it with something that's fairly affordable, like grass cloth or something that's not. Or I think if you're going to do the one wall thing, which I really will discourage clients from doing, I think you at least have to pull – like some really intense color from whatever is happening on the print and carry it through and either do, you know, a lacquer finish or something that looks very intentional so it doesn't just look like... Ran out of money. Like, oh, the 
Is the installer coming back to finish the rest? <laughs> I think when a client is afraid to, perhaps it's like starting them off with doing it in a bathroom or a powder room or something that's contained. And maybe that's why they're always asking for the future wall because right. it, there's something about the safety element and the emotional security of that. Well, most clients are pretty conservative, I think. Most people are. And they get wary of, oh, my God, they're going to be overwhelmed by either a color or a pattern or whatever. What What do you think it is? This question's more for Bella and Elena. What do, you, what do you think it is that clients are fearing wall covering or wallpaper, that they only want to get started in a powder room and then they see how beautiful it is and – and I hear this from designers all the time, you know, let's start in the powder room and then they'll be like, oh, well, this looks amazing. Let's do something in the hallway. Let's do something in my kid's room. Let's do something in the master. Where do you think that fear comes from? Well, I mean, I think sometimes it's simply something as practical as being a, a big financial undertaking. So oftentimes we'll plan for something really dramatic and that might be something that gets value engineered and either it turns into just a different covering, like I'll go back to grass cloth, something that's more affordable and you could still do intense color, or it gets eliminated altogether. I don't I don't know that people are afraid so much. Maybe they are a little bit, but I think it's a commitment. You know, it's a commitment. And, and you know, we all love wallpaper here, but let's remember it's not the easiest thing to do. It's not like putting on a coat of paint or whatever. It you have to do precise measurements, you have to order you have to worry about the repeat. I think a lot of people are overwhelmed by that. Now, obviously, Jeffrey, this is your life, so to speak, so Absolutely. you're not intimidated. But it is difficult. Yet, in spite of that, as Bella was saying before, such a huge resurgence in wall coverings. And now, I mean, you can get hand-embroidered wall coverings. You can get, I think, Fromital has something you can get, La Leak flowers that are right. sewn onto the wall. I mean, it seems like the budget constraints, for at the high end at least, have been blown out, and people are willing to pay for extravagant wallpapers. Now, your company, your dad started your company, right? And with grass cloths, only grass cloths, and yet you guys have evolved hugely. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about that and how that happened. The, the, the uh, history of our company, my father started in 1976, literally in our garage, with uh, 10 arrowroot grass cloths. And then he started out uh, as a for originally as just a salesperson, and mom and dad had their own shop with the uh, interior designers on staff in Livingston, New Jersey, which, funny enough, is where Philip and I ended up both living. And uh, really, I guess, returning yes, your to the brother world. Philip, we have to explain that my, my much uh, smarter, better looking, charming uh, brother. <laughs> he uh, is now the president. Is that correct? And, and so Philip right. is a president. I'm the CEO. That's, that's why it's called, called Philip Jeffries because we have half of the duo here. Hi, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the Cherish podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I am the co-founder and president of Cherish. Professional designers are invited to join the Cherish trade program to access special benefits like net pricing and a special trade-only customer service hotline. New this year, we're also introducing a loyalty program where designers earn $75 in cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish. We do hope you'll join us. And in order to do so, please visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's spelled C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now back to the show. But I also am interested, and I would love Elena and Bella to weigh in on this, why wallpapers did catch on. I think it had something to do with the physical shape of walls, you know, open plan layouts, open kitchens. I think walls got bigger, and I think the popularity of um, moldings disappeared, like very modern things. There's no moldings at all. But, you know, the traditional 
Upper East Side apartment in New York, which would have moldings on the walls, on the floor, on, on the ceiling. That sort of just gave way. So it, it really created a challenge. I mean, it was nice to have this nice open space. Everybody wanted, you know, I think it was inspired by lofts in, in the 70s, and, you know, Soho, all of that, people wanting to live on big spaces. But now I think that those big expanses of white, what do you do with them? I think people want warmth and containment. And I think whenever you're going in one direction, there's sort of a backlash into the other direction. So I think the huge expanses of windows also. Yes, because that's another factor, especially are, when you have art. Exactly. People are, are seeking like the sense of being grounded. Um, I've even had clients where the spouses have different ideas about the real estate purchase. So someone wants a pre-war, someone wants an open loft. Who wins and how do we achieve that? We right. ended up with the loft, but how do we create this right. sense of intimacy and space in this like football field right. of an interior? I'm a person who actually likes doors and walls and rooms, but you know I'm in a minority. I'm, I don't particularly like an open kitchen, but um, but sometimes it changes too. People think that they want an open layout, and then they get a sense for the acoustics or how it feels. And then maybe, you know, we get the call. This is not working out for us. What can we do to create the sense of space? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the idea of wall covering or pattern or layering color, that's when the professional can come in and help. Right. Right. And Bella, how have you seen that evolve over the years? Well, I, I totally agree with Elena. And I think that we have to remember that the 90s were super minimal. Right. You know, it was like the most minimal decade. I mean, you know, I'm not very old, so <laughs> I don't remember much before that, it, Michael. Uh, right, um, exactly. But the 90s, I do, the 90s I'm joking. The, my 90s were super minimal, and I... I John um, Pawson all the way. Right, and which is, like, amazing. Yeah, it's amazing but, if you're um, John Pawson. <laughs> <laughs> but I think to kind of expand on what Elena was saying, I think people want layers now. And I think this whole, like, maximalist... <laughs> which I'm not at really at all, but I think that that's kind of where things are leaning now. So we've the curve has totally swung in the other direction. So people are are liking that kind of pattern and texture and just layering all sorts of different right. materials together. Right, and the demand seems to be only growing. Like Jeffrey, you start your company. Your dad started about ten grass plots. So how many SKUs do you have now? How many different patterns and ranges do you have? Yeah, uh, we have over three thousand SKUs. I, I, I really don't amazing. know over how many ranges, but mm -hmm. we, being a creative house, we come out with a lot and and put a lot into design. So in Paris Deco off in January, we introduced. 23 new designs. Wow. 23 new designs. I remember designs. when you would introduce six, and that was a lot. That, that was a lot. Right. That was a lot. And um, see, for me, it's it's interesting going back and looking at wall coverings trend, right? And going out of Vogue, and you mentioned the minimalism mm -hmm. and, and the change in the architecture. But for me, I'm, I was a history major. You know, I love history. So I've gone back and tried to ask all of my father's friends, and many of which are retired now, why did wall covering go out of vogue in the 90s and, and early 2000s. And the, the number one thing that I hear from them is a lack of originality in design. Yeah. And, and in the 80s, wall covering was amazing. 70s, wall covering was amazing. Right. So many of these companies that are no longer even in business did so well that they just started to build on their success. And so this does well, let's do it again. This does well, let's do it again. Let's, this does well, let's, let's... And I think... Many high-end designers, like like Bella and Elena, when you see the same thing again and again and again and again and again from every company that walks through your door, right, or every showroom that you go into, it's almost like, well, I don't want to do that anymore. Right. 
I actually am older than Bella, so I remember <laughs> the 70s. I mean, there were super graphics on the wall. There were Mylar wall coverings. There was, I mean, everything graphic and bold. David Hicks blown up 40 times the scale. I mean, I do remember that, but, you know, as I said, I'm prehistoric. But it's so interesting now that it's back, and I, I do think it has to do with architecture, but maybe it also has to do with this idea of costing yourself, too. It's like almost like a an American take on the English country house thing, but urbanized. Well, I think, too, the idea that perhaps people looked at wallpaper as very traditional. Yes, we were saying granny. Wall, wallpaper right. is this traditional aesthetic when actually, you know, um, companies like Philip Jeffries have created papers that are modern or can be customized into a modern way. And I think that's how we've sort of evolved with our clientele is showing you know, people what we can do with the products that are offered in the marketplace or what we can create. It might not be this repeating floral. It might be something, as you mentioned, hand, you know, an embroidered something. So maybe it's some dense pattern that breaks away into nothing and then fades into the ceiling. I don't know. You These sure are have the a very things. popular ombre paper, I, re- I remember. Yes. Jeffrey, yes. And so that modern look at wallpaper. And so what's available on the marketplace? What are the visions that we have? And, you know, to have wall covering is much more durable, actually, than a painted white wall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings up the idea of budget, which I know I'm not going to ask you to name figures, but, you know, it's obviously much more, as I was saying, complicated, but also more expensive to do wall coverings, especially some of the wall coverings now today. We were talking about hand embroidered, from all this very expensive, you know, lines. You have some lines that are quite pricey as opposed to your basic grass cloth, basic grass cloth right. or your vinyl grass cloth, which you whatever. So is that a consideration with your clients? Do they, like and sometimes say, you know? Well, I think whenever we're handling budget, it's a matter of where are you allocating the resources, right? So is the feature the wall? Is the feature the rug? Is the feature the light fixture? I mean, there's always a budget no matter what it is. And so where are we putting that? So if the feature in that space is the wall, then that's where you can put the resources. Um, Perhaps in other areas, it's something different or you spend more here and save something here. There's also the long-term value. So if you're not having to repaint the walls all the time, and we look at this in our commercial projects, the wall covering is, you know, a cost-effective choice in the long-term as opposed to painting. Because that's one of the reasons I had brought up hospitality, although, Jeffrey, you said it wasn't that much of an influence. But I think in hospital, I think a lot of people who travel get inspired where they go to these, you know, high-design hotels and that kind of things. And, And often there's you know, a very dramatic wall covering or a feature wall or whatever. And I, you know, a sculptural wall, a living wall of plants, whatever. And I think that has had an influence on what people want in their homes. Do you find that to be true, Bella? Uh, I do. I do. I think um, sometimes in our projects, the art is, you know, it's the last thing. And I, I would love to hear from Elena on this because yes. she gets to do so much amazing art. But sometimes art is something that we like will wait a long time for, not, which isn't, great, but we, we have to. And I was, I just got back from Paris and I was really, besides Philip Jeffries, of course, their collection, I saw, I was really super wowed by a couple of collections. Um, Fromental, of course, and de Gournay are always like outrageously beautiful. But I thought what Pierre Frey is doing with wall covering was super interesting to me. Um, they're actually commissioning artists to kind of use their point of view on wallpaper or wall covering. 
Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I just thought that was so, it was so beautiful and it would not be for, you know, not everything was for every client, but I thought, well, what a great way, you know, like a dining room, for example, which is a place where we often are able to have that kind of very inspired vision kind of come to life. And oftentimes, to the point of your the budget question, there's a chair rail or some sort of woodwork at the bottom of the uh, half of the room. And so you can paint that and then do something uh, more elaborate above. And I thought to myself, like, what a great way of kind of killing two birds with one stone, of having the walls actually be the art. So I love what some of these companies are doing. I think that that kind of helps drive that kind of inspiration. And, and I think it's also cost effective when you look at yeah, the cost exactly. of, of art versus doing artwork mm. on your wall surface right. uh, as wall covering. I think yeah. it's extremely cost effective. And that's a very good lead into Elena here because one of the things that impressed me about Elena is that she has a network of young artists. She supports them. She has salons. She has exhibitions in her showroom. She has a, her experiential gallery in Bridgehampton. And I, for one... And I actually worked in the art world for a number of years, find it very intimidating to walk into a gallery still. And I would love to hear from her how she got involved. She has an art advisory service, how that evolved. Because art, A, can be hugely expensive, especially if you want to get a Jeff Koons or a Richard Serra, which so many designers do encourage their clients to get. But even if it's not about expense, it's intimidating. And people feel alienated from it. So, Alina, how did you get into that? Well, about probably 12 years ago, I started utilizing art imagery as inspiration sources on our project boards when we were talking to clients about design strategies. And then it just it evolved over time where clients would say, but I actually really like that. Can I so actually So they were responding to the image. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They responded to it in... In the scenario of this is the this is the point of view I have for your space, and they not only wanted the materials, they wanted the artwork. So it, it was a natural evolution where it became an inspiration for the space, and then we started purchasing, and then I started building relationships, and it happened over a dozen years. I didn't wake up one day and open Art Advisory, right? It happened over time, and it was a very natural process. But you mentioned that you started purchasing. Now, that is no easy task because I know galleries can be incredibly snobby and I think there's still this perception, you know, 50, 60 years later that decorators are going to go in and buy a painting that matches the sofa and I think that they're not always treated with appropriate respect by art world personnel. That's right. That's so right. did you experience that? Sure, sure. Yeah. But I think that it's a couple of things. You know, galleries aren't putting their prices on the wall. No, even so, though there's a state law, by the so way, that says you're supposed to post the prices for everything, so and they even, still don't do it. That's right. Even recently, I was somewhere, and I asked for the price list, and it was a gallery I hadn't worked with yet. And they said they didn't have a price list. Um, I said, that's fine. You don't know who I am. Um, and I followed up with the director, and, and we're on our way. Mm -hmm. But it takes time to build relationships. And I think for us, the proof is in the pudding. We just kept putting out work where the artwork was the feature. And so we just built credibility. And 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 that's how it goes with being a designer, too. I mean, you just have to do the work. So I think that gallerists saw 
the appreciation that I have and the research that we do. And they also saw us as an asset for them in terms of sales because we do a lot of work. We're putting artworks into renderings. We're doing options. We're putting different works together. And so we're buying multiples. And so we're sort of doing their job. Right. And also you feature a lot of work by younger artists. And these are not people it's going to cost you a half a million dollars or have a waiting list of 10 years to get a work. I mean, you, so you would think that the, the galleries and the gallerists would be more eager to work with you, but I think there is this residual there is, there is prejudice. A, there's a little bit of bias towards interior designers as the decorator who doesn't know what's going on. But then once a dealer spends 10 minutes with me, they know exactly that I know what's going on. And so I don't really have that issue so much anymore. I'm also present at all the fairs. So mm-hmm. We've developed a reputation. You've you've worn down um, their snobbery. But I will say that there is, for us, our design approach is to create really unique spaces. So I actually don't want to necessarily feature artworks by artists who everybody is utilizing in their projects. I, I personally like emerging art work by emerging artists, but I also like to feature that in our projects so that our projects have that unique aesthetic. So it could be an emerging artist who is a young artist, but it could also be a mid-career artist who just hasn't gained recognition yet. And that's something that I find a lot because I tend to, you know, I don't just go to shows. I'm invited back into the storage rooms and I'm putting on the gloves and I'm looking at the works and I'm discovering things. And it's that process of discovery that's so exciting to me. So when I can feature a mid-career artist and have that in our projects, and then that gets re- that project gets recognition, these people become better known, and actually it's moving the market too. Right. Well, it's interesting because you know the art world would deny it, but it is I would say just as susceptible to trends and fads as the fashion or the interior world. And there are artists whose work I've admired who were very successful in the '70s or '80s. And now are forgotten, and they're worth an, a second look. And I think that's an interesting thing to do as well, that you're doing that and starting to. And I think there's also a lot more information about art available, again, via Instagram and other social media. And I think that has helped to break down some barriers. I mean, I don't know if you guys follow Jerry Saltz, who's the art critic. You know, he's very political. He's the art critic for New York Magazine. He's very political. But what I love as well is that he features every day, practically, an artist, many of whom are young and alive and still working, many of whom are from the 70s, and some from the past that are forgotten. And he has such a voracious eye, and I find that inspiring. Is that something that you look to, Bella, um, in terms of, you know, I'm sure clients come to you and say, I, we, or you say to a client, we need some artwork here. And not everybody is as knowledgeable about art as they might like to be, or don't, you know, have time. How do you, how do you approach getting art for your clients? I work similar? with a few galleries really closely, <clears throat> and who represent a lot of different artists. Um, those would be my go-tos. I do go to the art fairs too, not like Elena does, but I, I try to go to Miami once a year as the kind of the main fair. And I just kind of collect things that I like uh, in in kind of my own, on my phone and follow up with galleries later. I, um, I have toyed with hiring an art consultant on some projects. And I, a friend of mine who owns a gallery in Chelsea, she kind of pulled me aside one day and she was like, you don't need it. Yeah. She's like, yeah. you know exactly what you like and you know exactly what's right for the projects. Just have a little more confidence in that. So I'm getting there. Okay, good, <laughs> I'm getting good, there. Good. It's taking, you know, it takes a little while. I know what I like for myself for sure. Um, that's kind of easy. But for clients, it's taking me a little, a little longer. 
I think Bella brings up a great point, which is the purity of I know what I like. And I think that's one of the things that I use to help clients get over that intimidation that you're talking about is once I show them a lot of options, it's very clear what they respond to and what they like. And it's exactly what Bella's describing. We don't have to have an art history degree. Right, right. It is. It is. I mean, we've done the research on the front end, but we are sharing things with clients. And some clients respond to photography, others paintings. You know, I'm always trying to bring in sculpture. That's a whole other thing. Some clients get it. Um, but I would say it's that purity of just what do you respond to? What do you like? Maybe there's like a childhood nostalgia thing going on, or maybe there's like a way in which you want your space to feel and that, you know, connects for them. So it, it does. I think part of the um, exclusivity and perhaps a little bit of the snobbishness of the art world um, is a disservice, and and that's where we come in right. is to sort of help break that wall down and just look at what do you like. Right, and and I think one of the things that you guys can do is really expand their vision a little bit. You know, we all know what we like, but there's other stuff out there that you might like if you knew about it but maybe you don't. And I think that that's a really valuable thing that you can bring to any client is to say, you like this, what about this as well, or a different way of approaching it. So now I want to get back, now that we've talked a little about art, because traditionally, you know, I I grew up anyway, that art was to be presented on those bare expanses of white walls. So and I think that that was a very limiting thing. And if actually, if you look at museums, et cetera, et cetera, um, the Met or whatever, a lot of the walls there are colored or covered with a wall covering. That, that's what I was going to say. Covered in burlap or, right. or, or linens and so right. forth. Right. So, you know, but I think there was this idea in the 80s and 90s that, you know, a gallery had to be a white cube and paintings and contemporary artworks could only be shown on white walls. So how do you go about mixing your artwork with wall coverings and different colors and that kind of thing? Is that something that's a, really a challenge for you? Like, Bella, you do a lot of patterns. So how do you work in artworks with that? I don't think there really are any rules to it. I kind of work a lot off of instinct, and it's not necessarily pre-planned. So if we have a day we're installing all the art, I mean, some of the pieces are purchased for specific mm-hmm. spaces, of course, but sometimes they're not. And I just kind of like go, it's just like a visual thing. I mean, it's sort of how I hang a light fixture. I sort of, you know, you can plan for it all you want, but sometimes you stand in the space and it actually needs to be up or down by 12 inches. So um, I think the same thing about art. I will say I tend to put quieter artwork on more, I guess, louder walls, but I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a rule, but I, I, I would say that more often than not, that's what we'll do. Something graphic on something plain or something with a lot of movement on something that's geometric. Just creating a little bit of a tension between the two things, I think, is usually pretty interesting. See, I would have thought, just to reverse, that you would put the quiet artwork on the subtle background. And so that to me, that's fascinating, that, that you do it exactly the opposite of what I would have thought. What uh, do you do, Elena? <laughs> yeah, what do you do, Elena? How do you do? I mean, I think exactly what you're saying is that juxtaposition, I think, is very dynamic. And so I think that the utilizing the design principles that we use when we're creating the space is the same thing with the art process of how we're installing it. I think with us, um, what you're talking about in terms of opening a client's mind to what else is possible 
there may be more that they like that they don't know. And I think layering artwork on top of wall covering is a whole another level that can kind of blow people's minds. And so I think it's, um, for us, it's showing them from the beginning the possibilities. And that, I think that's a little different about what we do is that we're showing art at the first presentation. And so we're showing materials, pattern, color, texture, artwork. So you think finishes. about it right from the beginning. From from the outset. Right. Usually, I mean, this is where this sort of intuition um, comes in, is that I usually have visions of artwork when I'm meeting someone for the first time. And so I sort of log that in. Once a project is signed, I start pulling artworks and fabrics and carpets and paint colors and everything all at once. And I start to put it together. And then there's the vision because it's really about a feeling and an experience. Then we, you know, present it to them and we put things in renderings and we show them options for how it is going to be. And that's how we sort of pitch the idea. Now, it may, we may or may not purchase that one item. It may not be available by the time, right. you know, I, we do that design process. But it triggers this thing of, okay, I'm I'm open to that. I'm ready for that. Gotcha. All right. And, and no offense, Jeffrey, but I want to talk for a brief no minute. No offense, take a minute. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I want to talk briefly about other ways to deal with walls. I mean, clearly there's paneling. Venetian oh, plaster. Oh, if we're going there, then I'm definitely taking yeah. offense. Okay. <laughs> you know, Venetian plaster, lacquer. Lacquer's been incredibly, you know, strong colored lacquer, wood paneling, that kind of thing. How how often do you think about that? How do you work that in? Is it smaller rooms, like a library you do paneling? Because I, I know there's still a lot of that. I mean, you know, Stephen Gambrell, I think, made lacquer almost ubiquitous in America now. Um, But that's, again, a very expensive process. So. Sure. So how do you, when do you decide, you know? We, we have been actually doing a lot of different sort of paint treatments. And, and just like wall coverings, there's such great innovation in paint now. So, yes, we do some lacquering for sure. But we have also been doing a lot of plaster. And particularly, um, I mean, it just happens that we've done it in larger homes. So pl- uh, homes that... When you say plaster, you mean plastering the walls? Like or v- doing Venetian pl- plaster. Venetian plaster. Yes. Okay, or, yeah. Or, you know, it goes by lots of different right. names. Because I think molding, too, is coming back in a way. I've plaster moldings. Are, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when when we can, we will. Yeah, <laughs> for it's, sure. It's really expensive. But. Um, but we have been doing... We recently completed a project, and we brought in a specialty uh, painter to do a, a, a plaster finish on all of the walls everywhere on both floors in the main living spaces. Um, and... Yeah, and then and then we've added a lot of of moldings and kind of woodwork to the walls, libraries, and I think we're seeing, at least in our practice, kind of a return to having some natural wood tones, mm-hmm. so not painting everything. Right, right. I've noticed that as well in interiors. I've been looking at the shelter magazines and that kind of thing, and I think that speaks, uh, Elena, to your idea of the creating this sort of cozy layered space. Have you? So how do you address that? Well, one thing I was thinking about was that the the, as interior designers, we're often in response. We're often, you know, it's like an intervention. It's a surgical situation because there's an architectural condition that usually needs some sort of improvement. You know, I'm thinking of a project we completed in NoHo where there, it felt very imbalanced because it was all windows on one side and walls on the other. I had this sense of like tipping over 
I'm sensitive to space. Um, And so the response was paneling the wall and it grounded it so that there was an intensity to balance this, the windows, which had a very strong view of the city. Um, And so we did this ebonized, um, ebonized paneling, which was very rich. So it, but it was modern. And I think about it weighted the room. It weighted the room. Exactly. But the detailing was done in a modern way. You know, I think people think paneling and they think traditional. And this client, you know, it was this bachelor pad and and I, I had to do a little bit of a sell. Um, on this, but it was, we could integrate the speakers, we right. could integrate the TV, um, the ebonized worked really well. And so I think I think it's um, paneling or plaster or even mirror are all sort of, for us, it's like an architectural solution to, to you know, balance the yeah, space. It's interesting where it's, I'm, you know, I remember from the 70s, lots of mirrored walls again. If you, if you, you know, if you could afford more than the Mylar wallpaper, you would get the mirrored walls. And that seems to be coming back, too, which is sort of interesting as well. And I guess it's often for architectural reasons. Exactly. So we just, um, on the Upper East Side, a few weeks ago, we just installed two enormous um, mirrors that have sort of a subtle antique finish. But they're enormous, and they flank the fireplace. And it makes sense of the space. It also reflects the light and the view. And that's what we're thinking about when we think about a choice of, is it wallpaper? Is it paneling? Is it mirror? You know, I'm not going to put mirror somewhere where I don't want the reflection, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, if I want to reflect the light or the view, then a mirror makes sense. And, and it's interesting, that's actually the history of metallic leaf wall covering. So if you go back to the gold and the silver leaf wall covering that were used in the palaces in Kyoto and, and mm-hmm. also in China, in many cases, there was before electricity. Right. Right. And this was something to reflect all the candlelight to light up the room. Right. Exactly. And and in Europe, too. I think. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, go absolutely. to Versailles, you'll see it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And the Hall of Mirrors. The Hall of Mirrors. The Hall of Mirrors. Um, so, Jeffrey, now to get back to territory where you're more comfortable, because I don't want you to be uncomfortable. Um, I wanted to ask, because one of the things that has amazed me in the last few years going to Paris or Salone or whatever, is the range of textured and different materials that are going on the walls now. And I'd love to know, and actually, I want all three of you to weigh in on this, but we'll start with Jeffrey. What do you see is coming next in terms of wall coverings? So, so, I really think that uh, obviously we know texture is, is here. It's here in fabric. It's here in wall covering. We feel that we are definitely a, a texture house, and that's our DNA. And it continues to evolve to become more and more three D. I was going to say it's going beyond texture, almost sculptural. So, to almost sculptural. And I don't want to give away uh, uh, oh, too, go too ahead. much. Go ahead. Go ahead. Give it away. But but <laughs> you will see some things coming out in our next launch, uh, which is in around the time of High Point where you're going to see some amazing 3D textured uh, materials that, in our mind, provide the ability to create almost like a plaster molding for the wall. Wow. But for the price of a wall covering, the ease of installation of a wall covering. I was going to say, I feel like my I can already hear my wallpaper installer complaining about <laughs> that one. <laughs> right. So, Bella, what are you looking at in terms of – because you are – as anyone who follows her Instagram feed, which I suggest everybody does, <laughs> Bella is Miss Wall Covering. So what are you what are you looking at? What are you Miss thinking about? Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have I have a banner really and funny. I have a tiara oh my for gosh, you. I'm a <laughs> um, well, I I definitely want to continue to use products that are showing a lot of pattern, but I think. What I'd like to see is there to be um, – this might make me very unpopular, but I'm kind of over the whole digital printing, and I'd like to see things that are even more handmade and and feel 
I guess for lack of a better word, earthier. Those are materials that I'm always drawn to anyway. So I like real things that exist in the right. world. So like cotton and jute and raffia and linen. And those are those are fibers that I tend to gravitate towards anyway. Um, so perhaps that. But I also like what I was seeing, said I saw in Paris. I think that artistry is really interesting to me and kind of using wall covering as art. I, lo I love that idea. And Lena, what about you? What are you looking at? What are you thinking about? I think for future? us and in the high-end market is really about options for customization. So luxury now is sort of old news. It's what is luxury? Is it just expensive? No. I go into many, many high-end homes and they all sort of look the same and it's pretty boring. What is, you know, what is what sets apart design now and luxury now, I think, is uniqueness, originality. And so we're looking at products that allow us for customization. We may not always have, you know, 20 or 30 weeks to do something completely original. We want to take something that is sort of tested and true and alter it for our design vision. That's what really we're really mm -hmm. looking for. We love to push and excite our vendors. So we will say, see that floral, see that stripe? I want that mashup. Can we do that? How is that going to happen? Mm -hmm. And can the stripe kind of fade and then the floral become stronger? Then it gets really exciting. So I I mean, I definitely like to take something that's classic and, and sort of explode it a little bit. And how does that work? That's what's interesting to me in wall covering. Most of our clients are interested in those ideas. They just they're not going to think of it themselves. That's why they bring us in. So they don't necessarily come in with a preconception of what they want. They say, we saw what you, how you transform. We love that before and after. We love our before and afters. What can, what can you do here? So it doesn't look like everybody else's. Yeah, I, I think that the, I 100% agree. I think that's more and more the future of the, the super high-end uh, luxury designer and I know, Bella, you've done things where you've done collages of different wall coverings together and, and that type of thing as well, which is how do I take the different materials available to me and, and create something unique for my client? Okay, well, I want to thank my wonderful guests. I think one of the lessons here is that, yes, there's a lot of blank walls, but they are an incredible canvas for creativity. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. Please send your ideas to our producers at podcast at cherish.com. Again, that's podcast at C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to the Cherish Podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. And look for new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.